Here we are, page 44 in our Pillows of Truth. And this is from the Second London Confession of Faith, chapter 17, paragraph number 2. Follow along as I read. Speaking of the perseverance of the saints, outlined in paragraph 1, the confession says, This perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ and union with Him, the oath of God, the abiding of His Spirit, and the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace, from all which ariseth also the certainty and infallibility thereof. The certainty and the infallibility of the saint's perseverance in this life. If you would now open up your Bibles with me to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to pick up at verse 38. We really weren't able last week to really flesh out 38 and 39. And so I I worked my message out to where we can go back and visit those two verses there. I ran out of time last week. So open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. And we're going to uh, read, to help set the context, verses 32 down to the end of verse 1 in chapter 11. Now remember, the Bible doesn't, when it was originally inspired to be written, didn't have chapter breaks. And so you'll see this flows nicely right into verse number 1 of chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 down to 11.1. Follow along as I read. The word of the Lord says, But call to remembrance the former days, in which after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions, partly while ye were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while you became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion of me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of of the soul. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Last week, the inspired writer of Hebrews, he stressed to these early Christians, particularly beginning in verse 32, where we read today, that enduring faith was indeed required to inherit the covenant promises which were offered and made available 
in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you remember that he reminded them that there was going to be a reality of real persecutions where enduring faith would be required? He reminded them that they had formerly not only faced persecutions, but that they responded with joy in the right way of those persecutions. And because of their enduring faith that was given to them by the gift of God, he was helping them to see, was he not, that they needed to continue to press on because there would still be continued persecutions. Last week he stressed the fact, in other words, that they needed a required, enduring faith moving forward. Did you notice last week, and we see it again today, that he rightly identified what it was that compelled them and what motivated them under such hostile attacks and persecutions? Look there in verse 34. Yeah, verse 30, sorry. Just, yeah, here it is. Yeah, it's verse 34. This is what motivated them. He said, you did these things knowing in yourselves that ye have, you possess in heaven, a better and an enduring substance. They already had it, but yet he was holding forth something that still needed to be finished and accomplished, and so press on. Enduring faith is required. It was their belief in the promise that they had already in heaven through the gospel of Jesus Christ an inheritance that still at a consummated point in the future needed to be fully given to them and experienced by them. It was belief in this promise as to why they were being so persecuted. This promise, think with me for a moment, is something immaterial. It's just a promise. You can't touch it. Uh, You can't fold it up and put it in your pocket. You can't have um, anything to to grab onto and hold onto. It's just an immaterial, invisible reality. It's a promise, though. It's it's not something you can have. You, you, You can't give sacrifices to give it. You can't give tithes to buy it. There's nothing that you can do, as A.J. was stressing out in his reading of Romans 11. Not even a birthright can guarantee that you will have this promise. But something, as this writer's been pointing out, that will give you claim and ownership of the promise, and that is faith. Simply believing the promise. To gain ownership of this immaterial thing, to have it and claim it and to own it, it requires faith. And what he's been outlining last week and going into this week and going forward is that this faith has to be an enduring faith. And so, we're entering into a new section here in Hebrews. From chapter 11, 1, all the way in chapter 12, to where he begins to help them understand the faith that he's talking about that's required to possess this immaterial promise that's being held forth that they already partly have in heaven, but they still need to fully experience. That's the section we're entering into right now. You see it in your notes there. I'm giving you, it's kind of a roadmap moving forward in this new section of Hebrews where he's outlined for us, and we've looked at that. We're going to consider it somewhat today how this faith, this enduring faith is required. 
And then in verse number 1 today, it's defined. And then moving through all of chapter 11, this enduring faith, which is what you must possess to have the realization of this immaterial promise that's held forth in the gospel. In chapter 11, beginning with verse 2 all throughout chapter 11, it's exemplified, this enduring faith. So he's already stressed that it's required. We're going to look at that a little bit more today. Then we're going to get into the definition of this faith. And then he's going to show examples of this enduring faith. And then when he gets done with that, he goes into chapter 12. And he basically lays it out and says, Now that I've, show, now that I've demonstrated for you that it's required, now that I've defined it for you, and now to add to the definition, I've given you a bunch of examples that you're familiar with, now I command you to have this faith. And so, how do I then uh, suggest we approach our text today in verse 38 and 39 and then dealing with verse number 1? And a title that I'm for my message today that I'm entitling Enduring Faith. Last week it was required. Today I want to operate under a title Enduring Faith Defined. Enduring Faith Defined. First of all, in verses 38 and 39, I want to treat uh, in more detail something we couldn't do last week. Um, under the subheading, this enduring faith is required during times of persecution. And then in verse 1, our heading is going to be the enduring faith defined. So look with me here at verse 38. Verse 38. In verses 38 and 39, the writer is doing two things that we weren't fully able to deal with last week because we ran out of time. What he's doing, first of all, is he's pointing out the emphasis of verse 32, that is, the importance of enduring faith is going to be required in order to make it unto the end. And then secondly, what he's doing by the use of Old Testament citations, Old Testament prophetical citations, is he's setting up for them um, the examples that he's going to draw from in the Old Testament in chapter 11. That's the two things he's doing in verses 38 and through 39. He's transitioning. He's set up the argument. Enduring faith is required. So he emphasizes that. He bullet points that. He puts an exclamation point on that. And then also he's kind of transitioning to get their attention and focused on examples of enduring faith. And he does this, as you see in your notes, by citing in verse 38 an Old Testament prophet by the name of Habakkuk. Habakkuk. He, does, he cites Habakkuk 2.14. I've given it to you in your sermon notes. Habakkuk there in chapter 2, verse 14, which is being cited here in verse 38, was inspired by the Lord at the time of Judah in that, in that uh, time in redemptive history to say, Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. With the citation of Habakkuk, we ought to first observe that it's Habakkuk's quote that's being used. Now, why is that important? Beloved, all of scholars, they agree that Habakkuk, out of all of the prophets, was the prophet that was most known for laying bare his soul before God, meaning laying bare all of his personal struggles, right? And how fitting that is in the context of where we're at in in the book of Hebrews or in this letter written to this church who is enduring such personal struggles and such personal persecutions. He's using Habakkuk, the struggling prophet, 
to pull from and to further help them understand what faith he is talking about here. It's important for us for the simple reason that those who are being ministered to in this letter who are those seeking to follow Christ faithfully, those who have sought to follow the voice of the great shepherd and savior, however, but for doing this, they are being ill-treated. They are being treated very poorly, wrongly. And so the inspired writer of Hebrew calls to their mind this prophet that they would have known, Habakkuk, the struggling prophet, to help them identify with the reality, beloved, that for God's people, Habakkuk, Paul, Peter, Jeremiah, Nolan, Tyler, Grizz, Doug, Mike, Julia, all of us, for God's people, struggles, afflictions, persecutions, they're not unique. They're not unique. They would immediately remember, oh yes, Habakkuk, Habakkuk. He was one who was, you know, uh, brought under persecution. He was the one that was. He was the one that was mocked, and he he so opened up his soul to God of how he felt uh, being treated by his countrymen this way. But Habakkuk told us, Habakkuk told us, the just shall live by faith. Yes, we're not unique in our predicament. The entire theme. Look at your notes there of the prophecy of Habakkuk, which makes it so relevant to where we're at in Hebrews today, of being cited here, purposefully cited, strategically used by the Holy Spirit. Children, you know, the Holy Spirit's the one who writes the Bible. He uses men to write it out on paper, but the Holy Spirit inspires them. So notice the one author of the Bible here, the Holy Spirit, placing Habakkuk right here in this place, in this letter, for this first century church who was personally struggling to remember they weren't unique in their struggles. The entire theme of Habakkuk is living by faith. And no other verse captures that theme of Habakkuk more than this one verse from chapter 2, verse 14 of Habakkuk. In fact, this verse has a very important place in the church of Jesus Christ. Don't miss this. Habakkuk 14 is cited by the Apostle Paul. I've given it to your notes two times as a bulwark to the correct understanding of the doctrine of justification, which is a pillar of the gospel. You can't, we're justified by faith alone. This is what A.J. has been reading through in Romans. It's a pillar. You can't move that pillar. You can't add to that pillar. You can't uh, adjust that pillar. You tamper with this pillar of justification by faith alone. You have no gospel of Jesus Christ. You have a different gospel. Read the book of Galatians. This is why Paul says, look at your sermon notes in Galatians 3.11, using Habakkuk, no man is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident He quotes Habakkuk. The just shall live by faith. And then Paul uses it again in Romans 1.17. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Oh, this verse given to Habakkuk by the Holy Spirit, picked up by the Apostle Paul, picked up by this inspired writer of Hebrews, is again and again used in the life of the church to do what? Spur us on to know why and how we're saved. In this case, in this context of the book of Hebrews, to spur us on to know that we're not unique in our struggles and our afflictions and our persecution as Christians and to remember, oh, this faith that you have, 
It has to be an enduring faith, which we're going to get into in a minute as he defines it more clearly for us. And consider that it was Romans 1.17, inspired by the Holy Spirit, who inspired Habakkuk to write that truth, which was going to be a lifeline for the church of Jesus Christ throughout all of history, was the very verse, Romans 1.17, founded upon Habakkuk 2.14, that caused the Protestant Reformation. It was this verse that this Roman Catholic monk named Martin Luther read children that convinced him that he had been all wrong how he was made right with God. And so do you see now how precious this verse is in verse 38 to the overall dynamic that enduring faith is required? It's a gem in our heritage as God's people. Notice in your notes here, That while the theme of Habakkuk is living by faith and Habakkuk 2.14 is a wonderful encapsulation of that truth, notice with me that the overarching purpose of Habakkuk's prophecy was to prove the sensibility of trusting God unconditionally when all hell is raging around you. That was the overall purpose of Habakkuk. He's coming into where we are at, reading through our Old Testament reading in Jeremiah, and he's saying, look, I know things look ultimately unretrievable. I know everything looks as if God has totally abandoned us. But remember, the just, the called, the covenant people of God, we don't walk by sight. We don't live upon the roller coaster of emotions. The just live by faith. His purpose was to prove that the sensibility of believing of God, even amidst unreasonableness, is what we must do. This is important, I think, at this point in the letter to the Hebrews. And the point of our message, we uh, are seeking to learn. Because back in 36, although they were experiencing afflictions and persecutions, we ultimately understand from looking back to Habakkuk and reflecting on our own experience, that in some way or another, these persecutions... These afflictions, they are going to be used by God in some way or another. We can't make sense of it. You remember that last week in 36 where he said, ye have need of patience that after ye have done the will of God, what was the will of God? That they would be made a gazing stock? That they would be accused? That they would be, perhaps, we didn't see it in the context, but we know from the book of Acts, they were thrown in prison by Saul of Tarsus before he was converted. All of this is important for us to understand that the, 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 the just shall live by a type of faith that will propel them forward in being committed to God and the gospel of Jesus Christ when everything in their flesh, everything around them says, this is totally ridiculous. What are you doing? Walk away. Give it up. Hang up the towel like Job's wife said to him. What does this do as we're moving forward here, approaching verse number one, trying to define enduring faith, what does it do for us? Well, look at your notes. It immediately takes the doctrine of faith that's being talked about here 
in chapter 10, beginning with verse 32, down into chapter 11, it immediately takes the doctrine of faith out of some abstract theory, invisible theory, and it directly imports it into your everyday practical living, doesn't it? When Habakkuk said the just shall live by faith, you see, he's taken the doctrine of faith and he's asking you to put action to it. He's asking you to put obedience to it, even though it seems unreasonable and unsensible to do so. And so when we talk about, as we're here today, wanting to understand biblical faith that's being defined in this section of Scripture that we're currently studying, we see that it is not just some theory. It's not just some invisible floating thing that is just on a piece of paper that we read and we we mentally and, and intellectually understand. No, we immediately see by the citation of Habakkuk in the context of Habakkuk in redemptive history he was in, and then that being picked up here in the book of Hebrews in the first century church, we see that this is something more. The definition in our understanding of faith as Christians has to have something more practical attached to it, you see. In the overall immediate context, the writer here is wanting them, he's wanting us to grasp the fact that those who are the just, called and justified by the righteous cross work of the Messiah, live out their faith as if it were apply their faith in real living circumstances. And let me ask you this, church. When is the application of what you say you believe the promises of God, uh, uh, an already possessed inheritance in heaven, but a not yet fully realized one someday when you die and go to glory or, or, you, or Christ comes back. When is that faith most required? When is it most applied in your life? In times of affliction, isn't it? That's when it's lived. Now look back at the text again, the citation from Habakkuk. The just, and I have it here, you can't see it on my notes, but the word live is in bold, 18 font. The rest of it's in 12 font, by the way. So it's this live. The just shall live. They must live by faith. And under our current heading that we're operating, still understanding how enduring faith is required, Consider with me that this word lives, it's a good translation in the Greek, it literally means to live, to breathe, to be among the living. In other words, the justified people of God must have enduring faith in the midst of afflictions in order to be alive. To be alive. Without afflictions, I don't know if you have a pulse as a Christian. You see, without persecutions, as we sung in our hymn going into this sermon, without being wrongfully and shamefully talked about and you're innocent, I don't know in the midst of that if you're alive as a Christian. Do you have enduring faith or not? Now, children, there may be a very good point that we can bring from this understanding. That it's because of the persecutions, because of the difficulties of a surrounding world, that's the context we have in this chapter, but we could say, or the difficulties that arise from within my own heart and my fallen flesh, no matter what it is, right? We could say this, children. 
if we're saying that because of these persecutions and these difficulties, we know that we live by faith. Look at your notes. It tells us and it proves to us and what's being taught to us here with the Bacca that where there is no enduring faith, where there is no one who professes to be a Christian demonstrating long-suffering with wrong and ill-will treatment toward them because they stand for truth and righteousness' sake, that Christian has no covenant life, has no Christian life. And so it puts an all-new perspective, doesn't it? On difficulties that arise in our life. It puts all-new perspective on persecutions. And that's exactly why he says, he goes on to say rather in verse 38, if any man draw back, or in some translations, if any man shrinks back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Because instead of seizing the opportunity to demonstrate that he's alive in the faith, exhibiting enduring faith, no matter it's hard, fall back on the strength of Christ, Yesterday I was praying myself, beloved, in the weariness of a man, tired, weak, saying, oh God, I I cannot do this. I cannot do this. What am I doing? I'm coming to the throne of grace and I'm applying enduring faith. And I'm saying, Heavenly Father, you have to help me do this. Because right now I I just want to check out. Mentally I'm not here. Spiritually, I'm not here. Oh, God, send your blessed spirit and help me in this low season or whatever. Help me through this, you see. It's an opportunity to to demonstrate the glory and the power of God in your life, the power of the gospel. I know it seems unreasonable. I know it seems unsensible. I know I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. That person's not doing what they're supposed to do. But I am still confessing Jesus Christ is Lord and that His blessed promises are true. That's enduring faith. And for anyone who draws back, the inspired writer says, here my soul shall have no pleasure in them. It's a great disappointment to me. Now, friends, I want to be clear at this point before we look at what he means here about draw back. He's not writing this to lay some heavy guilt trip on someone in the church. We we have enough things we're guilty with and wrestling with in the church of how we don't meet the mark. He's not doing that. He's not doing that. Remember the context. What he's doing is, is he's saying, little by little, your reaction to afflictions, little by little, your reaction to difficulties, little by little, your reaction to being made a gazing stock, being persecuted, little by little, little. These things, if you don't seize the opportunity to endure through them, through the power of the gospel, through the promises of God, little by little, they can inch you over to the cliff where you're already standing called apostasy. That's what he's doing here. That's what he's doing here. He's not sitting back and saying, okay, now here's the 10-point plan of how you handle difficulties. And Brother Grizz, if you don't you know, get point one through five wrong, well, you kind of failed the test, right? And you just, there's no hope for you. That's not, the con- that's not the context. He's dealing with the seriousness of it to help them to see, don't react wrongly to difficulties in your life because it can land you right in the middle of a ditch of despondency and apathy 
that can eventually take you down a course to say, I don't believe in the gospel whatsoever. Don't believe in the gospel whatsoever. That's what it appears is to be happening to these professors in the gospel in this first century church. Okay? Well, what's it mean to draw back? Because if these things can inch us closer to a wrong understanding of who Jesus Christ is and get into our heads, lest we think we're above being deceived, lest we think we're above you know, being tripped up in our walk with the Lord, um, what does this mean? Because we don't want to do it. He said, if any man draw back, you see there, I've given it to your notes, this phrase, uh, hapostello, it carries with it this idea. First of all, of those who from timidity hesitate to avow what they believe. Interesting. So that's kind of connecting a little bit with the context of where we're at in this first century church. Uh, they were perhaps intimidated to actually say what they needed to say about the Messiah, Jesus Christ, when they were around family members. The second meaning you have in your notes there, look, it means this drawing back to shrink back to be unwilling to utter or to speak up because of fear of what may happen. And lastly, to shrink from declaring or to conceal. Now here's an English word that we're not very familiar with and I had to go do some digging on it because this, um, this was in the lexicon that I use. It means to dissemble. Now that's not disassemble. You disassemble a motor. motor. But to symbol in the English, it means to know something but act as if you don't know it. Right? So imagine yourself and I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands, but imagine yourself at an extended family get-together. And there's people there that profess certain religions or certain faiths, and conversations get started. And then something said that, let's say it's not just a secondary issue, right? Uh, let's say it's a primary gospel issue, and it's an attack on one of the pillars of the truth of the gospel. Were they tempted to conceal and act as if they didn't know the truth that needed to be spoken at that time in fear of conflict, in fear, you see what I'm saying, of debate and family problems, so forth and so on like that. That's, that's really the historical context we have here. He says, don't draw back. That choice of yours to willfully conceal who you really are as a true covenant, blood-bought child of the Messiah, that choice of yours is adding one more link in the chain that potentially will evidence you as an apostate when you walk out from our midst and evidence that you never really were converted in the first place. So then an application could be, how many of us, I'll be the one to raise my hand, have been in a construction job site trailer, things being talked about, and I was in the verb acting in a dissembling way. I knew the truth of the foolishness some of these men were talking about, but because of fear of wanting to be ostracized, looked at, maybe thought of differently, what did I do? I concealed it. Friends, if you were doing that, if they were doing that, He's telling them, my soul has no pleasure in you because of the seriousness of what that can lead to. Are we willing to be made that gazing stock? Are we willing to be that salt and light? Of course, we know from the book of Proverbs, there's a right time and a right season to say certain things. Keep these things in balance, of course. 
But nonetheless, we are to what? Not be afraid to utter the truth of Jesus Christ. Draw back, shrink back. Don't be that one Naomi who would ever in the midst of your friends in the future who are saying things you know can be very easily demonstrated in the Bible, afraid to speak the truth. And Galatians 6.1, the man who sets the preeminent example next to the Lord Jesus Christ or right underneath the Lord Jesus Christ would be the Apostle Paul. He tells us in Galatians 6.1, what? You correct an erring brother with meekness and gentleness. There's a manner in which you do it, but oh, you must do it, Right? We gathered from this now, I think, a clear understanding of what was happening to them in verse 33, how they were being made a public spectacle, how they were made a gazing stock. Some of them were timid, not wanting to speak the truth. And he's saying, don't draw back. Don't draw back from the enduring faith which requires you to speak up. This enduring faith is the kind of faith that doesn't come with peace. It doesn't come with comfort or affluency. Rather, it's a faith that guarantees you some sense of conflict some sense of sacrifice, and eventually, in fact, all the time, it's going to require of you selflessness, this sort of faith. For the person who draws back from this required faith, this enduring faith, and this calling, he says, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. And by this, it is clear that he fears that some in this first century church, notwithstanding their good performance in the past in the former days, he still is concerned by things he's hearing, things they're saying, what some of their actions, that some would draw back as they continue to encounter enemies of Jesus Christ in their immediate families or in their communities and perish eventually as an apostate. That's what he's concerned about. But as verse 39 says, look at your Bibles, but as verse 39 demonstrates for us, he's hoping better things for them. Right? He gives them and he's been doing this all through the letter, a benefit of the doubt. But we are not of them who draw back. We're not of them who shrink back. Brothers, I think better of you. Brothers and sisters in the church of the first century, I think better of you. And now he's going to show them a better way. He goes on to define faith, and then exemplify it, give them examples to follow, and then he circles back around and says, now, since you know this, and I believe so much better of you, I charge you, endure with this kind of faith. And there's no better way to move forward than defining what he wants them to understand. And this nicely sets up for us our second heading going into chapter 11, verse 1. Enduring faith now is defined. Faith is the substance, the authorized version says, of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Things hoped for and the evidence of not things not seen. This definition on the forefront, when you first look at it, it seems very simple. When we look at our confession of faith or we look at other things and we take into consideration everything that this inspired writer has written from Hebrews 1 all the way to 10, we're like, really? This, this, is, this is it? That's it? It's not meant to be exhaustive. It's not to be, meant to be like, um, uh, well, like what Paul's doing in, in the Gospel of Roman with the doctrine of justification, where he takes two to three chapters and he's given this big, long, exhaustive definition, right? It's supposed to be a very concise definition. Faith is the substance, this enduring faith that I'm saying is required by you. It is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. That's his definition, very concise. And then he goes forward to exemplify or exa- give examples of that concise definition of faith. 
So understanding that it's rather concise, it's not this big exhaustive definition, what can we glean from this concise definition that can help us to begin unpack and move forward in the chapter of the type of faith that we're supposed to exhibit to endure through whatever may come in our Christian lives? What can we glean from this? Well, to help us to glean what I believe is here for us, as you see in your notes, we need to understand, or it's helpful at least to understand, the relationship of this definition of faith with the promise that he's talked so much about. The the relationship between the definition here in verse number 1 and the relationship to the promise. Let us begin by first recalling that this definition is in direct relationship to what he mentions earlier about the promises of God. Look at verse 36. Ye have need of patience, that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. You see, their faith that was going to propel them and motivate them forward, that they possess something already in heaven, and that there's a future giving of God in a fulfillment of that promise, there's more to it, it was directly connected with this faith. So for us to understand this faith, we need to understand somewhat its connection to our relationship to the promise that's being held forth that they're going to receive at the end if they held on in this faith to the very end. I've given you some passages all throughout this letter that he's been pointing to, showing you this relationship of faith and the promise. Look, for instance, at Hebrews 4, where he says, Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. This entering of the rest, when we looked at that, was again, properly understanding the rest that we possess in Christ. No more sacrifices, no more having to come to the temple because of his high priestly work. And also the rest, the eternal rest that will someday be granted to those who believe in that gospel. Right? So there's the already and the not yet aspect of the promise that's connected in some way with this enduring faith. Because through the vehicle of this enduring faith, whether some of you have a Max diesel or you got a Honda, right, four-cylinder, you still have the enduring faith and you're going to get there. It's going to get you there, right? To what? Get you where? To the possession of this promise. He said in chapter 6, verse 12, that ye be not slothful, but follower of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The faith that he's defining here, that he's wanting us to grasp and understand, he's saying is intimately connected with the promises So if you're going to understand the type of biblical faith that I'm defining for you, you must understand its connection and relationship through the promise that's being held forth for you. He points them to that reality again, or that connection and relationship again in chapter 9, verse 15. You have it in your notes. They which are called, that's the just, who live by faith, they which are called might, might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. How do they might receive that promise of eternal inheritance? That promise of eternal reality finally realized? How do they do it? Through faith, but not just any faith, an enduring faith. Look more closer to where we're at today, chapter 10, verse 36. 
For ye have need of patience that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. The writer has emphasized all along the way in this letter that while the believer already possesses certain realities in Christ, we see from these passages, and it's very important where we're at today and moving forward in verse 11, understanding about faith, the actual experience of all of what God has promised still awaits them. Still awaits them. From our current pilgrim perspective, while we're in this world, on our way to a better country, the reality of things hoped for, Romans 8, 23-25, the realities of things that we cannot yet see, 2 Corinthians 4, 18, are yet to be gained. And indeed, in our understanding of faith that he's trying to define for us today, we will gain those things in and through Jesus Christ as we endure. And so, in your notes, let's apply this. The relationship of the promise that we just looked at, already possessed but not yet fully realized, the relationship of that promise to our definition of faith mentioned here in verse number 1, helping us better define this biblical faith he's talking about, is more correctly understood as a verb, not a noun. We saw that a little bit in Habakkuk, didn't we? This faith that's being talked about, this faith which is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, is an enduring faith which is in action, is a verb, not a stagnant noun. Right? The faith being defined for us here is an action. It is, as the old Puritans used to say, an engagement of the soul, Owen liked to describe it as. An engagement of the soul in full belief and trust in the triune God. What about the triune God? Well, his attributes, his works, his character. And it's specifically a full belief and trust in God, this faith being talked about, in connection with his promises that he holds forth and that he says he eventually will give you. And so fleshing out this definition of faith connected with the promises, we see that it is the engagement of my soul of really believing God is who he says he is, and that He will someday give me what He guarantees or promises me in Jesus Christ. And so I am called then with this faith to actively live it out no matter the cost. This comes to the surface, I think, by simply letting the words that the Spirit inspired this writer to pen speak for themselves. And I say that is because Well, you'll see. (laughs) I've given it to you in your sermon notes. The word substance and evidence bring this to the surface. So I'm just going to let the text teach you itself what it says. It doesn't need a lot of commentary. Faith, this enduring faith, it says in the authorized version, is the substance of things hoped for. Now notice in your sermon notes, in the Greek... This is translated into the English two times as confidence, one time as confident, one time as person, and only one time, and it's here in our verse today, the word substance. But here's here's where it adds a little clarity for us in defining the enduring faith that he's talking about. Notice, it's a settling or a placing under a substructure or a foundation. Now, on the premise of what this word carries with it in its meaning, 
we must recognize that the faith that's being defined here for us is in some way understood as a confidence which supports a firm assurance of realities. It serves as if it were a foundation, doesn't it? Realities what? That have been promised, but yet can't be seen. So faith, you see, beloved, ought not to be understood as itself as the foundation, nor is it, I think the word substance is not a good translation, it's not the essence of those unseen realities, but rather, properly understood, it is the the confidence given by God that a person places in Him for the full realities to someday be realized. This helps us. Let me tell you why this helps us. Some people take this text, especially in the last hundred years, and they want to make faith like this mystical essence of some sort of power that you possess. And that if you exercise it, you can bring about certain things in God's providence. You know, you, you, you really pray, you, you do certain things, you tithe a certain amount, and they take these principles in Scripture and they just twist them and wrangle them. And then you know, people think that if they give $100 to the church that he's going to give them back uh, $1,000 next week in a raise of their job or whatever. You know, you hear a lot of times it's called prosperity gospel preaching. They take some of these principles, and this is one of them, and they start messing with it. But I'm, what I'm trying to show you is that when the Word of God is allowed to speak for itself, It shows you what faith is. It is the substance, better translation, it is the confidence. It's the confidence. It's the superstructure, right? So the confidence is the foundation. Faith is a confidence. It's a superstructure by which you stand upon and you move forward through times of persecution. Now, If I'm faithfully handling that Greek word and the meaning of it, and it is in fact the confidence, we don't have to guess or go very far to determine who's the sure rock that that confidence is established upon. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews 6. He's already told us. Hebrews 6, 17-19. Faith is a confidence of things hoped for. If faith is a confidence and it's to serve as a sure, strong superstructure underneath you to propel you through enduring times, is the confidence you, is the confidence me, is the con- what is the confidence? Is it in a confession of faith? No, you're shaking your head, no. We, we, we love our church's confessions and catechetical heritage, but it's not that. It is a faithful covenant-keeping God. Chapter 6, verse 17, wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability, the unchangeableness of his counsel, he confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things, unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation. You get the concept there, confidence, strong consolation, strong faith, who have fled for refuge to lay hold on the hope that is set before us which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into within the veil. The confidence rests on the immutability and the character of God. So, faith is a confidence in the immutability and the abilities and the character of God. Go to Hebrews 10.23, close to where we're at. Hebrews 10.23. 
He says here, in an exhortation, let us hold fast the profession of our faith, which he's defining, without wavering. Why? 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 It seems so unreasonable. It seems so insensible. Because he is faithful that promised. He is faithful that promised. Dear friends, this faith is a confidence that doesn't rest within your ups and downs in the Christian life. The faith that he's defining for us that is going to be an anchor for our souls to get through the life is the faith that calls you to look outside of yourselves and look unto a faithful covenant-keeping God. So, what's your reaction in times of persecution? What's your reaction in times of family and marital, child-rearing, whatever difficulty, sibling difficulty? What, what, what's, what's your solution? It's to open up the Word of God. Because there, that covenant-keeping, faithful God, who is immutable and will never change, He will always reveal Himself in truth. In truth. So it's confidence in who He is. It's not confidence in, you know, the tingly feelings that some use in worship. Uh, you know, I'm going to get a little critical here. We can do that, right? We need to be grown-ups in the church of Jesus Christ sometimes and sharpen one another, right? It's not the tingly feeling by the enhanced bass level used in the worship music. Okay, that, that's, that's, not, that's not the confidence in that. You're feeling to produce some kind of feeling. It's not keeping the sanctuary dimly lit and dark and then you have special lights and effects up on the, on the scene to enhance the, 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 the worship of God or the preaching of God's Word. I heard a report from an eyewitness Christian. They were at a church. Beloved, listen to me. This, these types of things are building up a weak faith. A weak faith. Not an enduring faith, a confident faith, no matter what's going on. I look to God's Word and establish my confidence in that. Because if that's the foundation, if that's the superstructure under which you are to move through the seasons of your Christian walk that you need to, you don't need the other things. You, you don't need the, the, the effects. I heard an eyewitness from a Christian who was in a, in, a, in a service, and during the song, when it would mention... The Holy Spirit, oh Holy Spirit, come down on us. White lights would flash at those specific coordinated times, like it's a concert, to emulate the effect that the Holy Spirit's presence is there. And now, with that, that's a nice plug for all of you to go to the conference next week at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary of how we worship God or how shall we worship God <laughs> where they're going to talk about the biblical doctrine of the regulated principle of worship. Didn't mean to get sidetracked there, but what I'm trying to establish here is that he wants us in the scriptures, we see how God is speaking to us in his preserved and pure word, beloved, what the faith is he's defining that's going to carry us through the thick and thin and it's confidence in a covenant God. And where do we learn about Him? Where? Not on the internet. You can learn some things. Where do you learn about Him? You learn about Him in His Word. In His Word. Now let's move on. He says, faith is the substance, this confidence, the superstructure we were noted of things hoped for. These are the things we can't see. And it's the evidence of things not seen. Well, what about what do we do with this word evidence? 
I've given you what that word is. Notice it has two meanings with it. It's a proof. And that kind of is what we understand when we look at our English translation, evidence. It's a proof that by which a thing is proved or objectively tested. Or the meaning also can mean a conviction or a persuasion. It has two meanings. So based on this, there are two meanings in which we can further understand the definition of the biblical faith that's being articulated here that he's exhorting them to, which he's going to exemplify in the life of Old Testament saints that's supposed to help us endure and persevere in the Christian faith. Well, let's consider, could it, could it mean the word evidence or proof, the way it's translated? Well, I think in some sense, the confidence in God's faithfulness is in some ways or another itself an objective evidence and proof about unseen realities. And how's that so? I think in some way it could be considered that as we're seeking what is the right interpretation here of it. In some sense, this first meaning of the word could be understood as referring to the operations of the Holy Spirit within us, wherein desperate times we exhibit an unusual working of God's, uh, God's operation within our hearts to where we're calm and we're not overreactive. Um, in other words, when everything's hitting the fan around us, we claim Romans 8, 28 through 30. And people will look at us in light of Philippians 4, verse 7, and they say, wow, there's something unusual about that person. They act, they live in an evidence-based way that exhibits something's different about them. You've heard sermons like that, right? Exhibiting your life that you possess, because of your certainty in Jesus Christ, you possess a peace that passes all understanding. Everyone else around you is, you know, fearful, anxious, you know, I, I, there's a lot of we live in those times today. There's a lot of examples you could you could give that people run around and do, you know doomsday's around the corner. But anyways, you, you're 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 exhibiting like, hey, what are you guys? What are you guys? Yeah, you're gonna be you need to be responsible. You need to be taking care of business. So, why are you running around all crazy like this for? You know, wow, what's wrong with that person? It's evidence and it's proof that there's some power of validity to whatever profession or God that you serve. Right? So in some way, I admit to those who want to use that interpretation that, you, that there is some validity to that. We think of this, the story in the Bible. You remember young ones when the three Hebrew boys were thrown into the furnace of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, fiery pit. What happened to them? We, we don't get anything in the text that they were anxious, that they were fearful, screaming, hollering. No, they, they were faithfully trusting in God. And they went there. Well, in a way, that exhibits, does it not? It's evidence, right, that their confidence, their faith, rests upon the faithfulness of God. And to everyone standing around is an objective test that that faith is real. In a sense, I could see where people take that. However, you always know when I say however, but I'm going to try to persuade you in a different understanding. However, acknowledging this, there is still a great degree we all would have to admit to the subjectivity of invisible faith. Even if it is your confidence in a God that you serve, there's some sort of subjectivity to it to say that it itself is evidence or proof that He is real or that your claims about Him are true. As itself being an undeniable, objective, verifiable proof or evidence which no person could possibly 
see or touch. In other words, my unbelieving neighbor could, it is theoretical here, it's a hypothetical, my unbelieving neighbor could possibly bear up to the sufferings and the difficulties as calmly as myself. And let's just be honest, sometimes unbelievers do react better than Christians. (laughs) Right? So, that whole approach of rightly understanding this word here, I, I don't think is hitting the point. Because if my neighbor approaches difficulties calmly, orderly, methodically, how to correct, get through whatsoever, and I do, well then, does that evidence that his faith is true, no matter what that faith is in, while mine is in the Judeo-Christian true, one true triune God, right? You see the problems with saying faith is being a proof or a test of the confidence you have in God? So admitting this, let us consider the second meaning of the word that I gave you in your notes. Because remember, the Greek word carries with it a second meaning. Let us consider the second meaning of the word, which seems to be more on track with where the inspired's overall argumentation has been going all along. The second meaning of the word carries with it the idea of conviction or persuasion. And so, taking that and building upon that, the faith here being defined is a persuasion concerning things not seen. It's a confidence in God about or a conviction regarding a persuasion of the things that you cannot see, but you believe them to be true. Which suggests to us, if that's right, that the writer is desiring for us to understand that just as our physical eyesight produces a conviction that there's things right in front of me, or a persuasion with reference to what I visibly can see in his visible reality, the faith that he's talking about here, that he's trying to define in verse number 1, is in a sense to be rightly understood as a gift from God which you didn't have before in your biological, psychological, spiritual makeup as a human, which is a spiritual organ that allows you to see things that are not true and believe them. That's what it is. That's what the faith he's talking about here. Because of the confidence of who God is. The confidence of the truth of His gospel. The faith that's going to help you and I get through whatever may come is the superstructure that in the new birth gives you that spiritual organ by which you can see, as if it were, the spiritual realities. And we have those blessed examples in the Scripture where God enhanced the spiritual ability of His people. Do you remember the prophet that could look upon the mountains and see the army and the host of the Lord? You see, what was he doing, beloved? He was able to see with clarity the invisible realm. And so what did he do? When his sidekick there was all nervous, we're going to be just fine. We're going to be just fine. How, how is it? I, I, I believe with all of my heart what's going on here and what we're seeing about the definition of biblical faith 
that, that, that is attached to it, this idea of required enduring, this acquired persecution, this, uh, this enduring affliction, difficulty, so forth and so on, as a called disciple of Jesus Christ. I believe what's going on here is we're seeing the wonderful reality and the gift that is given to God's people in those intense moments where they're being burned at the stake. How else can we account for the history books and their testimony of the Christians being burned at the stake and singing to God while their flesh is being burned off of their bones. You can find no other explanation for it, friends, other than that this spiritual organ, which is able to believe with such conviction, such persuasion, this spiritual organ being able to, 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 to be in that reality even though they're still in some way connected here and still trapped in this physical reality. You see, and that's what martyrdom is a lot of times. It's that transition, isn't it? Of leaving this physical realm to go be with the Lord and Stephen being stoned there in the book of Acts chapter 8, I believe. And he's looking up and he sees the Lord Jesus Christ while he's being pelted with stones in his head, blood gushing out, his brains hanging out on a rock. He's in that transitional period. And in those times, I think what we're seeing here is that God will be faithful and He will help us with the spiritual organ that are the eyes of faith. And we can see, Mike, as if it's right there. If it's right there. The, the, the most exciting thing about this is that when you were first given those eyes, I want to draw you back to your time when you were when you first were given those eyes of faith to believe. Now we know from Saul's conversion and other conversions in the Bible, not everyone's is the same. But there is this, there is this one part of commonality that we all share as those who have come into the covenant family of Christ. We have presented with the gospel. And we have come to reckon that it is true. And there is something that clicks. It's going to be you know what? Yes, I surrender all. It is true. That, 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 that gospel is true. And it is if the cross of Christ, the realities of the gospel, the reality of who He was is so vivid and real. It's like when you're first granted the utilization of that spiritual organ to believe with confidence the truth of the gospel, I mean, it's like it's a whole new world. You have a whole new set of eyes. You have a whole new persuasion about life. You have a whole new persuasion or conviction about who God is and who He says you are and who He says He is, so forth and so on. That's what's neat about this. Because I'm convinced that what He's teaching us here about defining faith is not at all what we have before perhaps thought. You know? We have a pencil sketch of some of these things. But this really helps us to really put legs up underneath it. And so, for all of those in the church who love the transliteration here of chapter 11, verse 1, if you're going to come and talk to AJ about Romans 11 after church, and now you're going to come and talk to me because here's how I would retranslate this. I'm not reinterpreting it. I'm not changing any of the words. But taking it from the Greek into the English... And we're looking at all those meanings. We look at the overarching argument of Hebrews. This is how I would say it. Faith, I have it in your notes, is a confident assurance in God's faithfulness concerning things and realities hoped for. And it is a persuasion concerning the promised realities 
that we cannot see. When it's lived out, when it's applied, enduring faith is a settled, confident, forward-moving assurance and persuasion concerning all the heavenly realities that we've been promised as believers based upon one thing, Jesus. And Jesus alone. Jesus alone. I'm going to conclude with this thought. Enduring faith, friends, as we have defined it today in chapter 11, verse 1, it's the opposite of drawing back. It's the opposite of shrinking back. Enduring faith stands in stark contrast to the perspective of those who live only for this world. After all, if your religion doesn't come with any sense of comfort, peace, and influence, why in the world would you believe what the world thinks? Enduring faith stands in stark contrast to that. Despite the, 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 the mockery, despite the isolation, despite lost opportunities, despite persecutions, I still will speak and live for the truth. The believer, on the other hand, that is the one who possesses this enduring faith, lives by the conviction that the things pertaining to his or her salvation, what are those things? The ministry, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ and His promises. None of which any of us have seen. I I wasn't there on Golgotha. I wasn't there at the tomb. We believe them as true only by the testimony and the report of God's Word. These for us are the ultimate realities that guide us and shape us as God's people who possess enduring faith. So then, this morning, for you, child of Christ, who have been given the spiritual eyes to see, the confidence to hope upon the faithfulness of God for those things, for those things which are persuasion of heavenly realities that you someday will come in possession of, what is it that's shaking such confidence? Is it unanswered prayer? Is it delayed prayer? Is it still habitual sin that you're fighting against? Know today, dear Christian, that you need to return back to the covenant and faithful promises of God in His Word and not your emotions and your feelings. God does not answer prayers in your time frame. He does not answer or take away difficult people or even sinful habits in your time frame. He does it in His time frame. And so therefore, Christian, come with enduring faith to His Word and find your solution and your remedy. And you know what it is? It's asking Jesus for mercy. Like we said in the hymn before we come into the sermon, God, good Lord, and He has good friends. He gave you the eyes to see. Good Lord, remember me. That's your prayer. That's your prayer, Christian, in these times of affliction, persecution, personal sin, whatever it may be, whatever it may be. Good Lord, remember me. You gave me these eyes and I see the truth of myself. I see the truth of the world around me. I see the truth of the the enemies of Christ who are persecuting me in the wrong, ill-treating me for only the cause of righteousness. Good Lord, remember me. However, there may be some here today that have never been given those eyes. Maybe there's some here today that need to turn to Jesus Christ and find a confidence in His gospel that you've never had before. Perhaps you wrongly consider yourself good. 
You consider yourself better than your cousin, better than your brother, better than your sister, better than your husband or your wife, your aunt or uncle, or your co-workers. And you think that, you know what, I'm a nice enough person. And that God, on the last day when I die, my creator who created me gave me a soul which makes me different than a beast, than, a, than an animal. That creator, he's going to look at me and he's going to say, you know what, on a scale of 1 to 10, I give you a 7 and 8. Come on, you can have... Uh, the eternal promises. You can have all the blessed realities that I'm going to give to everyone else that trusted in Jesus. But for you, since you were good, since you were okay, you can come into heaven. Well, if there's anyone here today that believes such a lie, know that God will not grade, He will not judge you on a curve. The Bible says through the inspired Apostle Paul, there is none not righteous, no, not one. And what that means is, is despite what we think of ourselves, despite what you may think how good you are, in God's eyes, you've broken His law. And James says to break one law is to break them all. You may think, taking your brother or sister's toy, stealing candy out of their Christmas stocking when they weren't looking. Tyler, why are you smirking? You may think that those things weren't a big deal. But God, He does think those things are a big deal. There is a law, thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not murder. Jesus expands on that law, doesn't He? To mean having hatred towards someone in your heart. God will judge all sin. If you find yourself in that place today of wrongly thinking the truth about yourself, guess what? Just as the Christians come and say, Good Lord, remember me. You can come today to the cross of Jesus Christ. And you could say, God, you are good. I am a sinner. And good Lord, remember me. Remember me. And will you apply the blood of Jesus Christ? Will you apply His righteousness to me? Forgive me, O God. Good Lord, remember me. Let us close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You at the close of considering Your Word today in humbleness, God, knowing that, Father, You give us good practical steps in Your Word of what it is that we are to do with this faith that You have gifted to us. Lord, this, as I've defined it today, a spiritual organ. In other words, eyes of faith to help us to believe with firm confidence that You are the one, the true, and the living God. And that You did in Your Gospel send Your only begotten Son down to this lowly world that through Him You created And that He, in the form of a man, gave up and sacrificed His own life's blood, not committing any sins, so that there could be hope and forgiveness for all of those who You gave unto Him. As a shepherd, we are His sheep, and You gave us to Him. And God, we pray that, Lord, as we see these things, that You would further build up within us evidence persuasion, conviction that Christ, as He says in John 14, is in fact right now preparing for us a place that where He is, someday we may also be there. Father, we confess to You the weakness of our flesh. We confess to You, Lord, as human beings, Lord, who are so affected by the remnants and still the corruptions of our life, Lord, in the world and sins, That, oh God, we do at times doubt. 
O Lord, we do in the moments of our weakness and our pilgrim journey with you, Lord, we do get weary, we do get tired. And O Lord, these these steps, Lord, of drifting and of, of, of walking away from this confidence we know that rests in you, we ask you, would you preserve us, O Spirit of God? Would you meet us in your word? Lord, if there's any amongst us, Lord, and even, Lord, myself, I pray, if there's any place there where I'm not thirsting for your word, that anchor by which you will reveal to me the truths of these blessed realities that still await us, God, would you revive within our hearts a hunger and a thirst to read your holy scriptures? Father God, I, I pray not by way of, of condemnation, but I pray, O oh Father, I pray, O oh God, as a weary pilgrim who's been following Jesus for some years now, I pray for the for the for the for the souls, O oh God, of the people here today, Lord. I pray, O oh Father, if there is someone here today, dear Lord, who has not been finding joy in your word, that has not fully been shown by your spirit, O oh God, the necessity and the and the and the and the, 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 the food and the nourishment in this hard Christian life that rests in your word. Spirit of God, will you begin to to draw them to that place that only you can do? A father cannot do this. A mother cannot do this. Lord, a pastor cannot do this. We cannot do it for one another. Oh, Spirit of God, only you can do it. Would you give your people, Lord, a hunger and a thirst to be in your word, to read your word? May they meet you there in your word. God, and use that word, I pray, Lord, to grow them and to preserve them and to strengthen them. Oh, God, forgive us, we pray. Forgive us if we have fallen into the air of relying on our emotions, which are so fickle and change so rapidly, Lord, by the effects of our circumstances. We pray, God, that you would reassure us once again of some of the things we've seen today in your word as I have just simply done the homework and given it to your people and let them see what it says for itself. God, I pray that you would help us to rest upon it in our times and seasons of affliction as your people. Let it be the great course that navigates for us through the troubled waters that we no doubt will face And oh God, by your mercies, I pray. Lord, if I were to tarry another five, another 10, another 15 or 20 years, oh Father, may every professor of your gospel who I look into their eyes today, oh God, will they be here? God, will they still be amongst us, I pray? Will they still be, Lord, in the fold? Lord, we have so much working against us. We confess, Lord, that we can be timid. Oh, Lord, our enemies are great. This dark, evil world, Lord, it constantly plagues us. Oh, God, we wish to be free from it. It, Lord, at every corner wishes to draw us away and tempt us, oh, Lord, into its wrong ways. We need you, oh, God, to strengthen our confidence in you. We need you, O God, 
daily to persuade our hearts and our minds of the truth of thy Son, our risen Savior, the Lord Jesus. Lord, there are not any of us in here that are so eminently exempt, Lord, from wrong thinking, eminently exempt from the snares of the evil one, Lord, and the remaining corruptions of our flesh. O Lord, that does not look up to you and ask you to give us, O Lord, what we need as your people. We pray that you would preserve us, that you, O God, would keep us. You are the one who are unchangeable. We've been learning in this passage. You are the one who is immutable. You do not change. And O God, if you do not change, and Lord, if you have truly called us into your family as we profess you have done, We look to you now and we ask you, God, keep us. Help us to tarry on, Lord, with enduring faith as it's been defined today, looking unto you, not ourselves, not one another's. And Lord, now prepare our hearts as we come into next week and show us how you have done that in the life of your people so that we can glorify you, we can sing, and we can worship you all the more because you are truly faithful. We love you, O Father in heaven. We love you, the risen Son, and we bless you, O Spirit of God, who has made all of these things true to us. We are a peculiar and a different people. We are in this world, O God, but as your sons and daughters, we are not of this world. And what a blessed reality you have made known to our hearts, O Father through your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.